This is the Ask the Vet podcast series from Solar Power World. Welcome to another edition of Ask a Vet. I'm Kathy Zip, Managing Editor of Solar Power World. And this month's veteran is Abigail Ross Hopper, President and CEO of SIA. And as you probably know, Abby came on board in her new position at the beginning of the year. But you might not know that her background in energy actually goes back much further. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know her better today. And thank you for being here, Abby. Kathy, thanks for having me. I feel honored to be included in this group of folks. Let's kind of go back to the beginning, where you grew up and maybe about what your family was like. Sure. Um, I actually grew up right outside of Washington, D.C., so I consider D.C. my hometown. I went to school in D.C. from 7th through 12th grade, so I know all the roads. I know why the streets are labeled like they are. I know how to get from here to there. I'm actually a real D.C. driver. So um, (laughs) I grew up here. I have one younger brother. My mom was a federal employee. My dad was a legislator and then a judge in Maryland. Federal government and political service were a part of my growing up. That's so neat. So what were you interested in as a kid? You know, were there any moments that maybe were early signs of what you would do as, as your career? Not at all. I was the kind of kid that every report card, it said, Abby has a lot of good ideas. I wish she would speak up in class. Oh. <laughs> I was incredibly shy and quiet. I read a lot. I swam. That was my sport for 10 years. Wow. Being on a stage and doing lots of advocacy and public speaking is actually a far cry from what I was like as a kid. That's so funny. I wish I could swim. My dad was a swimmer and I always ran track and I think swimming's a lot less harsh on your joints. I'm feeling the effects of it now. So I admire that. (laughs) I saw actually that you went to a private all-girls school too. So I went to a a private Catholic school, but it was co-ed. So did you like the all-girl environment? I loved it. I went there for six years, seventh through 12th grade. It was an incredible educational opportunity and it was a fabulous environment in which I was taught that I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, however I wanted. Girls were the editor of the yearbook and the editor of the newspaper and the captain of the team and the president of the class. And so it just seemed completely natural to me that girls and women would lead in all areas. So that's pretty cool. Actually, my daughter just started there today. Oh, how neat is that? That's such a good point, though. When you grow up seeing women in all those powerful positions and in diverse areas, then, you know, you just, you think it's just natural, very empowering. So then after that, you went to Dartmouth College and you earned a Bachelor of Arts degree. So what was your thoughts, you know, on maybe what you wanted to do or or going into college and what was your plan? Oh, I had a very deliberate plan. Uh, When I was in high school, I decided I wanted to be an emergency room trauma surgeon. So I spent the last two years of high school volunteering the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad right outside of Washington. I rode ambulances. I was an emergency medical technician. When I went to college, I joined the fire department and fought fires and rode ambulances and drove ambulances and took science classes. And it was sort of halfway through organic chemistry, I realized that this probably wasn't going to be my career. (laughs) I I was not cut out to be in a lab. I really wasn't. I was definitely needed a lot more human interaction. So I kind of switched paths. My dad was a lawyer, tons of family were lawyers, and I decided that perhaps law school would be a better choice for me. So that's kind of what inspired you to go to law school. And then what kind of led to your first job out of college? So when I was in college, I pivoted from deciding that trauma surgery probably wasn't my cup of tea to I did a volunteer stint 
actually for a long time, many years at a battered women's shelter, so a domestic violence shelter and sexual abuse intervention agency. I worked there first as a volunteer and then later as a staff member. So I decided I wanted to go to law school and be a sex crimes prosecutor. So that didn't happen either. Um, my first job out of college was with the VISTA program, Volunteers in Service to America. It was a precursor for AmeriCorps. I worked uh, at the Vermont Department of Corrections. I worked with sex offenders and men that battered their wives because I worked with victims and I wanted to kind of understand the psychology of the other side. So I did that for a year. As you probably know, you don't actually get paid very well. So I had another job working in a bookstore because I'm an avid reader. So, you know, I worked to have enough to have a little apartment in Vermont. I worked there for a year, and then I went full-time at the Domestic Violence Agency doing all the outreach for young people. So I was in schools a couple times a week doing educational programs for teenagers about dating violence and sexual assault and date rape. And I facilitated a couple of support groups for, for young people. And that's when I became convinced that I needed to go be a sex crimes prosecutor because there's just way too much violence in the world. Wow, that's a difficult area to take on. I really admire your drive. seems like you were really on a devoted path in that area. How did you get into the energy sector after that? I know, it seems kind of funny now I talk about it. So I went to law school. I went to the University of Maryland Law School in Baltimore. I came home to go to school. And your first year of law school, classes are fairly prescribed. You don't have a lot of choice about what to take. But when I took some of the contracts and business association courses, and especially the federal income tax course, I actually fell in love with tax law. I thought it was incredibly interesting and challenging. I loved how it fit together like a puzzle. Uh, I did well in my first year of law school, so I had an opportunity to, to do a summer associateship at a law firm. And I realized that, oh my goodness, there's a whole other world out there <laughs> in the corporate, uh, corporate law world. That's how I changed. Throughout my career, I kind of followed what interested me. And, and what interested me at that point was corporate law and tax law. So I took every tax law that the University of Maryland Law School offered. I did my clinic in tax law. I volunteered in tax clinics helping people do their own income taxes. And then when I left law school, I was a corporate lawyer for a couple of years need people interested in things like tax law, so I'm glad that there's people out there that, that found that interesting. I think it's, it's really cool what you said about how you just follow your, your passions. How did energy end up being your passion? Well, you know, life happened, and so I spent three years at a big law firm being a corporate lawyer, and then I discovered I had a new passion, which was my kids. So I left the big law firm. I went to a small law firm. That's when I was a divorce lawyer. Um, there was the work was fascinating. It was incredibly complex. You know, I had that human element that throughout my career, I really actually like people and I like spending time with them. Yeah. So I got a ton of time with people, not always on their best days. And I did that for five years. I had two more kids. So I had three kids under the age of five, billing thousands of hours a year, realizing that this probably was not a sustainable model. <laughs> so how am I going to manage this? And I just had an opportunity that presented itself. A friend had just become the general counsel at the Maryland Public Service Commission and offered me an opportunity to come work with him. And that was my foray into the energy world. What were your initial thoughts when he offered you that position? I mean, was it more just creating a better work-life balance and you thought, you know, I might as well give this a try? Great question. I had worked on 
just as a volunteer on Governor O'Malley's campaign in the great state of Maryland. And the issues around electricity restructuring were a huge deal in the 2006 campaign. So that was kind of my first interest just as a citizen. I thought, wow, this this could be an interesting area of the law, but it also would provide a very balanced family life. And I made the jump into energy law. Energy law alone is complex. Regulated utility law is incredibly complicated. Yeah. So I, the learning curve was intensely steep for me. Even with someone versed in, in tax law and, and the background that you had, I think that really speaks for how complicated it really is then. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You spent some time there, seven years, working in the energy sector in Maryland. How did you get the opportunity to work at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in 2015? I'd worked for two years at the commission and then four and a half years working for the Governor O'Malley, and he was term limited. So his tenure was coming to an end, which meant my tenure was coming to an end, and I was Thinking about what I might want to do next, I knew that energy would be a part of it. I, I did fall in love with energy. I fell in love with, the, again, the complexity and the real-life application and the way in which it touches every single citizen and how impactful changes in our energy mix can be on our, on our economy and on our environment and on the health of our citizens. So I knew I wanted to do something with energy, and honestly, this opportunity came up. I was somewhat familiar with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, when I worked in the governor's office. I'd engaged with them a bit around offshore energy. So it was another bit of a leap. I have a history of me taking leaps and jumping into industries that I'm not totally versed in and trusting that I'm going to rise to the challenge. Well, so far, I think you have a pretty good track record. So (laughs) uh, it seems like even though you may not be versed you have so many other skills working with people and your, your law background that you are able to apply. So did you end up liking that position? Oh my gosh, I love that position. I would say about 80% of my time was spent on oil and gas. I spent lots of time in New Orleans, lots of time in Alaska, lots of time in Houston. I really got a deep appreciation for the role that oil and gas play in our economy and the incredible amount of engineering and infrastructure and billions and billions of dollars that are spent building offshore platforms and the the level of professionalism and commitment by the thousands and thousands of people that work in that industry. It is an incredible industry and it was a privilege to work there. I also spent a lot of time on the offshore wind sector It's a personal passion of mine, so I I got to oversee several siting and auction processes of the federal government. And then just generally, I got a real good sense of how the federal government works, how decisions are made, how decision makers are influenced, which I think is a great perspective for the job that I have today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big thing now, you know, the leader of a solar energy organization saying, you know, that they can respect what oil and gas does and the role it does play in the country. And so much of the time, there's tension between the two industries. So I think that's really cool and beneficial to have that experience and understand where that sector is coming from and how maybe we can work together. The thing that was the most impactful to me was, A, understanding kind of the level of expertise that has been developed in that industry over literally a century. 
and thinking about how that expertise can be utilized in other parts of our economy, and then really spend time in Houston, spend time in Louisiana, spend time in other parts of our great country. You understand that that sort of the oil and gas sector really becomes a part of the culture, and so it is naive and I think disrespectful to assume that folks will just sort of ignore that part of their culture. And so if we're thinking about how we're going to transform our economy and transform our energy mix, we need to understand where, where people are and sort of the values and ideas they bring to the table and, and make renewable energy and renewable energy careers and renewable energy technologies consistent and appealing rather than threatening. Very well said. So I'm guessing that since you said you kind of are given opportunities in areas where you may have not seen yourself before, maybe you didn't see yourself as a future president and CEO of SIA. Not something I dreamed about as a little girl. No? (laughs) Well, how did that opportunity come up and what were your initial thoughts then? So I have a bad habit of working for politicians that are term limited. So, you know, the governor was term limited and then obviously the president was term limited. As President Obama near the end of his tenure, I knew that I was nearing the end of mine. You know, I just kept my eyes open for what was interesting to me. And again, I knew it would be an energy because that had become my expertise and my passion. But it wasn't entirely clear to me sort of where and in what role. And when I became aware of the opportunity at SIA, I thought, you know what, that sounds intriguing. It is clearly the most exciting and sort of groundbreaking technology and energy source out there. It is an incredibly entrepreneurial group of people that are hungry and are willing to work for it. You know, it is it involves state policy, which I love, and federal policy. It involves advocacy, lots of public speaking, lots of opportunity to engage with our members. That, to me, was actually one of the attractive parts of the job. I love sitting down with our members and hearing about what's happening in their business, what's happening in their world, how we can be helpful, and building those relationships. And so, no, while I did not pine away at the age of five to become the CEO of SIA, it has turned out to be an incredibly good match. That's wonderful. So how have your first eight months or so been? You know, I'm wondering what are some of the more challenging or surprising aspects, and then you kind of mentioned some of the more rewarding or fun parts, but interested to hear what it's been like so far. It has been, without a doubt, the most fun I've had in a very long time. It is challenging just in terms of the scale and the scope of the issues that we cover. It has been challenging and that the entire country is figuring out how our new president works and how best to work alongside of him. It has been surprising a bit that we find ourselves in the middle of a trade case. That certainly was not something I anticipated in January. It has been rewarding in that the industry has taken a position and we have had the privilege of representing them in fighting this case. So it has been kind of on all sides of the table, more fun, more challenging, harder, easier than I ever thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess the the more fun and the more challenging kind of evens itself out then, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't want to do anything if it wasn't fun and challenging. Yeah. Well, and again, you look back through your school days and your career, it really does seem that you have so many skills, really, that can translate to this job. One thing I really liked is that when I read about how there were power outages in Maryland and the government O'Malley asked you to find ways to improve the resiliency of the electric distribution grid in 60 days. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that just seems like such a daunting task. And so 
you kind of reach across the aisle and you try to bring people together from all different areas of the energy sector to come up with a solution in that very quick period of time. And so you said you enjoyed talking to all your members and different industry stakeholders. So was that kind of a good practice for what you're doing today? The opportunity to work on that grid resiliency plan was an opportunity to kind of leave all of our preconceptions at the door and really hear clearly from experts and and stakeholders about what the issues were, what the problems were, and how we might resolve them together. It was an exercise in building trust. You know, I had the opportunity to work with utilities, and they provided information and data to me that they hadn't provided to anyone else before. And we were able to use that in a way that helped design a solution. And, and then we went to the regulatory commission and advocated on, on the utilities' behalf. You know, we thought there was a solution that needed to happen, and we went to our, to our regulators and said we support them in their efforts to do this, which had never happened before in the state of Maryland. The governor did not go and support the utilities. And so that kind of, A, understanding what the issue is and understanding it from all the perspectives, bringing together a diverse group of people who are interested in solving a problem, and then, you know, using data to figure out the right solution and then fighting for it, I think is a good model for how to uh, solve some of the challenges we have in the solar industry, right, around kind of on the distributed side, around net metering, on the utility side, perhaps around issues like PERPA or other areas, um, getting folks together to figure out where we have common ground and how we can reach a solution that's mutually agreeable is part of why I'm here. Communication is so important. Have you seen anything else in your past work or other industries that you think solar could learn from? You know, one of the things I, I learned as a, as a divorce lawyer is that you've got to find agreement on small things first. People aren't going to come in and solve the biggest problem at the outset. You have to build trust and build relationship and build accountability. And so I'm always looking either with our members or with other industries or with other issues, how can we have some easy wins early and build trust and create relationships so that when we get to the really hard stuff, we'll, we'll have the kind of communication and, and a relationship where we can actually try to solve it. There's a lot of issues with expanding the solar market, but is there maybe one thing that you see especially holding back solar or one prominent thing holding back solar? The trade case is kind of the big challenge that's immediately in front of us, and I think we will get through that and we're, we'll continue to fight that. But putting that aside, I think... I think the solar industry has this incredible opportunity to move from an energy source that's 1% of our nation's power to an energy source that's a significant 10, 20, 30% of our nation's power. And in order to do that, we need to operate like a power generation source that's 20 to 30% of our nation's power. We need to do that in how we advocate. We need to do that in how we communicate. We need to do that in the market, right? We need to make sure that there are market rules that incent and reward kind of all the attributes of energy. So the short version is, do I think there's something that if we could solve would really unleash a lot more solar? Yeah, I think if we have real conversations about wholesale energy markets and how to reform those, that could unlock a lot of solar. But that is complicated, technical, and challenging work. Absolutely. I read that three focuses when you started were to ensure the continuation of federal tax credits and create strong markets at the state level and advocate for inclusivity in solar. So do those still remain your major initiatives? 
Yeah, I would say so. Again, this, the trade case is kind of the, the emergency in the room. And so it has a lot of my attention. But, you know, my job as a CEO is to keep moving this organization forward. And those three things that I identified in January and that you just reiterated remain our focus to make sure there's strong federal policy, specifically around the tax credits, to create those markets at the state level. And a lot of that kind of wholesale market issue I just talked about can happen kind of at that state and and interstate and regional transmission level layer. And then that last piece about advocating for inclusivity and equity in the solar industry remains a really important piece. We Here at SIA, we convened a working group around diversity and inclusivity and have taken some steps to ensure that we practice what we preach. We are co-funders in a study with, that the Solar Foundation is doing around under giving a better understanding of diversity within the solar industry. Solar Foundation does the solar census every year. So I can tell you the percentages of women and the percentages of people of color, but I can't tell you what kinds of jobs they hold at the moment. And that's pretty important in understanding equity, right? Understanding if people are CEOs or at a much lower level. And I think just for me, like being incredibly intentional and aware of how all this plays out just on a daily basis, right? Who are we putting as speakers on our panels? Who are we inviting to SBI? Who sits at the table in meetings and who sits behind the table? You also may have seen that I interviewed SIPA's Julia Hamm for this podcast, and she said that you two actually worked together in the past, which I thought was pretty cool. So can you kind of tell us about that when you work together and kind of what it's like working together again and what you think you can accomplish together? I'm excited to have Julia as a colleague again. She and I worked together when I worked for the governor. You know, we were looking at at utility scale uh, solar questions and how utilities could play in that market. And obviously SEPA is a great resource for that information. So we worked on some of those questions and answers together. She's been incredibly generous as I have come into the solar industry kind of full-time in helping me understand the history and the dynamics. You know, we, we co-own SBI together, so she's been helpful in sort of helping me understand what that means and how that works and what we need to do to make sure that we continue to be successful there. What do I think we can accomplish? I think Julia and I both share a real clear understanding of where this technology is going and how it plays into uh, so many other technologies, that it's not merely solar, it's solar plus storage plus distributed energy resources plus smart homes plus electric vehicles plus a modernized grid plus microgrids and understanding how all of those technologies and um, systems work together is what's going to help solar grow and what will help transform our energy profile. And Julia knows that. I know that. I don't think either of us feels territorial about knowing that. And so figuring out ways that we can continue to grow all of those things is going to be a really good outcome of our partnership. That's awesome. I'm very excited to see two strong, intelligent, passionate female leaders in the solar industries. Really, really excited to see what you two will do together. I always like to end getting to know um, something about you maybe more personally that doesn't have to do with work and solar. So what do you like to do when you're not focused on work in the solar industry? You said you're an avid reader. I am an avid fiction reader. I love to read. I love to run. I love to do yoga. I love to spin. 
I have three kids, and that keeps me busy. I spent last night filling out all the back-to-school forms from oh, the first boy. day of school. <laughs> and I love to travel. The beach is my favorite place in the world. It doesn't really matter which one, although I go to Bethany a lot. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm on a beach, I'm a happy, happy, happy hopper. <laughs> you've probably been traveling a lot for SIA while you've been on the job. Yep. So you got to get some beach time in there, too. I know. I, my <laughs> last job, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, I found myself on beaches fairly frequently. Yeah, now that's a I, good perk. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty awesome. I, I was only on the coast ever. Now that I have this job, I spend a lot of time in landlocked states. So oh. I, I have to make sure I get my beach fix yeah. uh, on a relatively frequent basis. <laughs> well, maybe after SPI, you'll have a little bit more time to you know get out to the water. But I really, I really have enjoyed speaking with you, Abby. It's so cool to hear how passionate and smart and creative and enthusiastic you are towards your work. I think that the solar industry is in great hands, and we're just really excited to have you on board. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you better, so thank you so much for your time. Oh, Kathy, it was really fun talking to you. I appreciate your questions and your research. Oh, we really appreciate it. This has been another edition of Ask a Vet. Join us each month as I, editor Kathy Zip, bring you the unique perspectives and insights of those who have spent more than a decade in solar. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Join us online for more podcasts, videos, and great editorial content at solarpowerworldonline.com. And don't forget to share your thoughts on social media. Catch you next month.